politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to storm the castle of tyranny to fight once again for our freedoms. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here today at Blaze Media Friday, the 17th of June. And we got a lot to cover to sew up the week. And once again, I always start off with the dilemma, which civilization killing issue to discuss? Because there's about 10 of them. Do you discuss the fact that they released 100,000 illegal aliens into our country within one month? Or do you discuss the fact that they are pushing in 49 out of 50 states poison shots, poison shots into babies and toddlers? And I think we're going to focus more on the latter. Because I believe if we actually grew a movement in time for the midterms, not that I have any faith in Republicans in Congress, but to create this commission, whether it's an ad hoc group of good guys in the majority, as we call them, the minority of the majority when Republicans take over, or in the states, a commission, a 9-11 style commission, but really more of a Nuremberg style commission on all things COVID fascism. We will discover that it's not just COVID, it's not just even biomedical tyranny, which in itself is probably the worst thing we're up against, but we will discover the depth of evilness of all the Western oligarchs and thwart their plans and everything else, because believe me, this is just the beginning. COVID is just kind of that little uh, iceberg, the part above the water, as crazy as it is, probably the worst thing we've ever gone through in our country's history, in the world's history, it doesn't matter. That's just a fraction of what they plan with their artificial intelligence, transhumanism agenda to take away our medical care, our food, our fuel, our way of life, our families, our humanity, our sexuality, everything. So we're nothing but an androgynous artificial intelligence organism that they can control in perpetuity. It, it is nothing less than that degree of gravity. And that's what we need to focus on. But do you hear the hoofbeats of the cavalry behind us coming to storm the castle? No, you don't. We are the cavalry. It's not going to happen without us. Never forget that. So, you know, I am pushing behind the scenes. We are growing momentum to try to shame the other governors to speak out and cancel their orders of these poison shots. And I want to first just talk about the depth of depravity and violations of the Nuremberg Code, literally knowing these things are dangerous, covering it up, and not caring. It's not that they don't care. They do care. They want to make sure we get people sick and kill them. I mean, first off, j just the studies I'm seeing there's so many more studies out now. Major academic literature. There's one in JAMA on brain disorders. Peter McCullough tweeted it out yesterday. Even with all the censorship, it's shocking how much academic literature there is on every part of the body being damaged from these shots. We now have three studies on Creutzfeldt jackup, essentially human mad cow disease where the brain turns to mush. But... Uh, this guy, um, 
Josh Gutzko, we've quoted him before. He has a great substack that he was involved in a FOIA request asking the CDC about their safety monitoring. They promised to monitor. Well, what happened? So basically, basically, in late January 2021, CDC had a briefing document. That was around when the shots came out for the general public. And they had a briefing document where they promised, as standard operating procedures, that they would monitor theirs for safety signals. And it described the analysis that the VARES team would conduct. And they, they actually used the word unprecedented. They would monitor it. And that included plans to produce weekly tables of the incidents of about 40 different adverse events. They would also engage in data mining using PRRs. So that's proportional reporting ratio. You know, so basically, if you see, for example, okay, we typically have a flu shot that causes, you know, three of these things after a million shots. Well, a million COVID shots, we now have 3,000 of these things. Oh, whoops, we got a real problem in terms of the proportionality, okay? They would also engage in data mining, right? Data mining. So basically, he was behind the um, Children's Health Defense Fund, um, that's a RFK Jr.'s uh, outlet, their FOIA request. And they said, okay, could you send us the weekly tables that you produced? And, you know, the analysis that were described in your paper. Well, in their response letter, they state there were no PRRs were conducted by CDC and that data mining is outside of the agency's purview. So you could check out his um, substack there. He goes into greater detail. But this is out in the open. They lied about every last thing. Again, we don't need to see that because we just see the real world results that it's killing so many people and it is negatively effective. And COVID, the more you vax, the more COVID there is. So we, we certainly see that. But here you have ironclad info. And basically, aside from Ron Johnson at a federal level, and we saw Rand Paul during committee hearings, he went after Fauci, got him to admit that there's no study showing uh, any uh, improvement from serious illness from the shots for kids. He got him to admit that Oh, we don't speak about the royalties that the committee members on the FDA's committee get from Big Pharma. A couple other important nuggets there. So him, Ron John, and at a state level, we have one governor. And that is it. The worst violation of Nuremberg of all time. Human experimentation mandates on human beings destroying the bodies of an entire generation of people. And now, even after every excuse is over with, you can't say it's an emergency, you can't say kids are are part of the emergency or ever were, and you're putting them on babies. After it's all over, after it was clear it's negatively effective, after their own data show that. And yet, 49 out of 50 governors, their departments of health, ordered shipments of millions of these poison shots. Why is it that we are where we are? But this is why we need a Nuremberg-style commission with a new Nuremberg code and a list of action items. And this is what I'm going to be working on 
for the rest of the year. This is my life's work at this point. Not just because it is the most depraved thing ever done and the most consequentially harmful thing ever done, but also it will hold the keys of who is behind all of the destruction, even on other issues, and again, just how evil these people are. I I think part of the problem is too many of our fellow countrymen still cannot wrap their arms around that our own government and people in the West, the enlightened West, would be that evil. But let's let's talk a little bit more about the extent of where this is headed. Again, the COVID shots and COVID fascism and denial of medical care and pushing things that, that, that are, don't work and are dangerous, lockdowns, shutting kids out of school, making it that you can't breathe out of your mouth anywhere you go, even up a two-year-old, all this stuff, discrimination, denying kidney transplants to people who don't get the shots, this is biblical stuff, right? If you look at what they, and this is not even new, the technology I'd say they've been working on, depending on what you're talking about, five to 25 to more years, artificial intelligence, transhuman stuff, this is the tip of the iceberg, okay? You know, Rand Paul asked Fauci, hey, are you going to commit to not funding more Chinese research? And he was like, no. <laughs> I mean, even now, and there's no push, like, There's no clamor from Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, all these Republican governors saying, we need answers. All all these people say, you know, these Republicans are, COVID is so terrible that we needed to go along with COVID fascism. Okay, well, if it's so terrible and it killed so many people, don't you want to find out where the heck it came from? It's It's an amazing thing. To this day, there is no story greater than what is the thing that destroyed humanity? Where did it come from? Who was behind it? What did they know? When did they know it? Who knew it? And no one wants to find out those answers. That is the most remarkable thing at this point. And and Republicans are running as if it's 1997, as if this never happened. But anyway, we cannot even begin to imagine, not just at Wuhan. We know there's 46 biolabs in Ukraine. We also know there are a bunch of them in Georgia. God knows what we're playing around with in Africa and have been for for decades. What sort of experimentations have we been doing, are we doing, are going to be foisted upon us next? And I just want to give you one, one point that, I mean, and this is not even new. It's from Aaron Carity at Brownstone Institute. He's a doctor, but he's also an expert in bioethics. And he used to be... um, professor of psychiatry at the UCI School of Medicine, director of medical ethics at UCI until he was forced to leave because of COVID fascism and is you know speaking out against it. He notes for two decades, two decades, scientists have been quietly developing self-spreading contagious vaccines. We've spoken about this before. The NIH funded this research in which either DNA from a deadly pathogen is packaged in a contagious but less harmful virus, or the deadly virus's lethality is weakened, or is it, by engineering it in the lab. The resultant vaccines spread from one person to the next, just like a contagious respiratory virus. Only 5% of regional populations would need to be immunized. The other 95% would catch the vaccine as it spread from person to person throughout the community transmission. 
The technology bypasses the inconvenience of recalcitrant citizens who may refuse to give consent. Its advocates highlight that a mass vaccination campaign that would ordinarily take months of expensive efforts to immunize everyone could be shortened to only a few weeks. Scientists have already shown proof of concept in animal populations. In 2000, Spanish, Spanish researchers injected 70 rabbits with a transmissible vaccine. So this is old already. Return them to the wild where they quickly pass the vaccine on to hundreds more. European countries are testing this technology on pigs. In the wake of the COVID pandemic, about a dozen research institutions in the U.S., Europe, and Australia are investigating potential human use for self-spreading vaccines. DARPA, for example, is examining the technology for U.S. military to protect against the West African Lassa fever. It's a type of, type of uh, hemorrhagic fever. Um, and of course, it does not require the consent of the military service members. In 2019, the U.K. government began exploring this tech to address the seasonal flu. And by the way, now we know that the flu shot is negatively effective and it has pathogenic imprinting and it creates original antigenic sin. Uh, we know it made people more vulnerable to COVID and in general depletes your T cells. So that's what they're doing. So kudos to Aaron for, for putting this out, but this is really old news. It's been going on for quite some time. And this is what we know public. Privately, how much further ahead are they? And is the COVID vaccine, to some extent, an example of that? Again, it sure seems like the more you vax, the more it spreads. And it, there is now very strong evidence. There was a recent survey that came out showing this. Some of you might have seen it. And, and I've heard it as well, that even unvaccinated women have experienced some um, menstrual irregularities. Now, it's a question, did the COVID itself, COVID spike protein, do it? But we do know that at least conceptually, Pfizer wrote in their own trial protocol that it could spread through, through the air. I think how much practically it does is a question. And I think there clearly is proof that a lot of these ailments clearly are more endemic of those that got the shots. So it's not a one-to-one -one ratio, but it is very likely that there is some degree of shedding of this vaccine. Now, not it might not be exactly in this perfectly self-spreading dynamic that they envision and plan in the future or are already working on now, but it is possible that the COVID shots already are kind of like that. I'm trying to open up your minds to the fact that you can't run away from this. If we don't sit and have a Nuremberg trial, reestablish a Nuremberg commission, and uh, uh, reaffirm a Nuremberg code, and have real ironclad policies on this stuff, on the surveillance state, the biomedical state, the funding, ban this all, audit it, root it out, and ban it, and have criminal penalties like the death penalty for any government bureaucrat caught funding it or engaging it in it, this stuff is going to happen. It's not even a matter of like, oh man, I'll, I'll stand up. I won't go for the mandates. I'll lose my job. And, and that's hard enough. No. And this gets back to the whole 5G issue, what they're doing with the microwave uh, waves. Who knows, who knows what they're doing? All I could tell you is 
They have the motive to do it. They have the depth of depravity to do it. They have the wherewithal to do it. And yes, they do clearly have the ability to get away with it. In the past, when I would hear different things that were deemed conspiracy theories, I, I didn't believe it for some sort of mixture of, of the aforementioned factors. Like, are they really that evil? Could they really get away with it? Could they do it? <laughs> if you don't think they could get away with it, they're getting away with this in plain sight. I never thought, even a few months ago, two years into this, that I thought babies they wouldn't be able to do because it looked like, you know, they were delaying it. We weren't able, you know, they, they weren't able to push it. And here we are in the home of the free and the land of the brave. We are the first country to do it on babies. They're actually expediting. You know what they're doing? Uh, Toby Rogers pointed this out in his Substack. What they're doing now is, so normally you would go in order. So it goes from the FDA advisory committee. Then the FDA signed off on it yesterday or this morning. Then now it goes to ASIP. That's the CDC's advisory committee. And then the final step is the CDC commissioner, Walensky, signs off on it. All right, And there's no doubt they will. So typically you would go down in order. It's three things. It's Moderna's you know, older kid's shot and then Moderna's younger kid's shot, Pfizer's younger kid's shot. They're actually doing the meeting at CDC's ASIP today and Saturday for the younger, for the babies before they do teenagers. And, 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 and the reason they're doing that is because they want to make sure come Monday they already have the pictures, the blitzkrieg, it's being done. right? Once something is done, like it's harder to oppose it. They want the pictures of the babies being strapped down crying while they, they uh, put the stuff in their arms. Um, they don't want to waste the time. They'll come back to Moderna's teenage shot because that they already have. You know, with Pfizer already was approved for a long time. So this is just giving Moderna, you know, their ability to do it too. But that 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 ship already sailed. They want to plow the new ground that nobody has gotten yet and, and, and establish that as soon as possible. So that's why they're going out of order. That's how demented and sick these people are. Utterly depraved human beings. There is no desire from Republicans to investigate this, to halt it, to look at the scope of injury, humanity in, in need of help, to fund reparations. Again, one thing that needs to happen is everyone who got these shots should be eligible for a funded government's funding everything else except for what they're entitled to fund, a cardiac MRI. Let's see who has latent heart inflammation. You will, you'll see that. That's the only way to see it. And certainly all the people that are in need of help. This is just to, to give the scope. Um, an, another new substack I found. I don't think it's new, but it's new to me. I just found it. Um, Margaret Menge, M-E-N-G-E, Crossroads Report. That's the name of the substack, so look it up and subscribe. Um, this is from two days ago. Fifth largest life insurance company in the U.S. paid out 163% more for deaths of working people ages 18 to 64 in 2021. Up to $6 billion in claims. Five months after breaking the story of the CEO of One America Insurance Company saying deaths among working people ages 18 to 64 were up 40% just in the third quarter of 2021, I can report that a much larger life insurance company, Lincoln National, reported a 163% increase 
death benefits paid out under its group life insurance policies in 2021. She basically found it in their annual statements um, for Lincoln National Life Insurance Company. And it turns out the company paid about $500 million in benefits, death benefits in 2019, $548 million in 2020. So it's interesting. 2020 is the year of the pandemic, but the year of the pandemic before the shots. Okay, so it went from $500 million to $548 I don't see here the data for the other, you know, preceding five years to establish like a baseline to see if 548 was even a little bit above the baseline, but let's say it was. And then, so 500, 548 million, 2021, a stunning 1.4 billion. 1.4 billion. That is utterly astounding. 1.445 billion. And she has a screenshot of their financial reports. You can see it right there. And they are the fifth largest in the U.S. behind New York Life, Northwestern Mutual, MetLife, and Prudential. Um, the company was founded in Fort Wayne, Indiana in 1905, getting the okay from Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln, to use his father's name. It's now based in Radnor, Pennsylvania. That is unbelievable. She notes that if the average annual annual salary of people covered by group life insurance policies in the U.S. is seventy thousand, this may represent twenty thousand six hundred forty-seven deaths of working adults covered just by this one insurance company. This would represent at least ten thousand more deaths than in a normal year for just this one company. Remember, it's not number one, it's number five. Okay? So, again, check that out at Crossroads Report. Margaret Minge, thanks for the great work. Amazing, amazing work. Uh, Substack has truly been one of the few blessings during this entire period of time. A beacon of free freedom, truth, intellectual discussion, facts, and uh, it's a great substack. But that is extremely, extremely important. You know, during the FDA's meeting, Dr. Robin, Robin Wish, W-I-S-C-H, she is with the FDA, so she spoke. Here, I was trying to pull up the clip here, but I don't really have all of it. But basically, she showed that events of croup RSV and pneumonia were reported with greater frequency in the vaccine group. And she goes on to dismiss it. Yeah, it's not really a problem. But she did admit that. That is, again, unbelievable. Straight out in the open. One more uh, point I want to make on this subject. So, another great substack. Dead Man Talking, Joel Smalley, S-M-A-L-L-E-Y. He's an analyst in the UK, has some great stuff here. He took a swing at estimating the deaths caused by the government's response to the, pande- response to the pandemic. So he tried to find out what's kind of broadly lockdown deaths, what's vac- what he called vaccine-induced COVID-19 deaths, and then fatal adverse events. Okay, 
And he comes up with, basically, since the start of COVID-19 pandemic in England and Wales, there have been a total of 227,406 cumulative excess deaths. Okay, and that makes sense. Because, what, England's about one-fifth of, of the U.S. population. So, you know, that would put, that would be the equivalent in, in, in the U.S. of like 1.2 million, which I think probably is where the excess deaths are. And he was able to break down where he thinks it comes from based on the official COVID-19 death count that he he reduced it. Basically, he, he estimates that that's around 150,000, 150,000 COVID deaths. But then there's another roughly 77,000 unaccounted for. And he, and he has all these charts and goes through the timing. But he concludes, based on the timing, that the UK's government policies are currently responsible for a total of 77,140 cumulative excess deaths. And he believes that about 9,000 were due to kind of like lockdown type of things. And then 35,000 vaccine-induced COVID-19 and 33,000 roughly fatal AE. So in other words, we've been noting this all along. COVID got worse because of the shots. And he has a way of quantifying that. And I find that really fascinating because if you take, you know, 77,000 and you multiply it by five, you get about 385,000. And, you know, I I was speaking with... Uh, uh, Spiro Pantazatos, he's the uh, neurobiological professor at Columbia that we had on the show before, and he did a paper estimating roughly, you know, 180 or so thousand vaccine-caused excess deaths in the U.S. through August. And I was corresponding with him, and I don't know if he's completed the paper, um, but he updated it. He updated the paper, I think, to reflect through March, I believe. And the numbers that he gave me, and I'm just trying to pull this up, it was in the threes. Okay? It was definitely in the threes. It was between 320 and 350. Okay? That's kind of the range he had. If you want to know how many people were died as a result of the vaccines in the United States, 32350, and again that was a few months ago. So it's just just interesting if you extrapolate um this guy Joel Joel Smalley's estimate in the UK for about 77,000, it it would make sense give or take. It would jive with what we seem to be seeing here in the US. Um and then especially if you look at the underreporting factor of theirs and different measurements, that it's it's likely within that realm. You know what I'm saying? It's it's, it's a lot more than one hundred thousand, and I'm not going to tell you as of now it's a million people. No, it's not. I mean the numbers don't bear that out. It would be a few hundred thousand in the U.S. I, I want you to spend sixty seconds letting that thought seep into your brain. That is unfreaking believable. Now, speaking of the UK, 
you know, one of the interesting dynamics of this entire ordeal of the past two years is that we've gotten a chance to really associate with and become friends with people all over the world. It really is no longer a division between countries or even typical ideologies. It's really a group of elites in the West, in government, in the medical profession versus everyone else. And we've had on a lot of really smart doctors on our show from America, um, doctors that care deeply about patients, about looking at facts, about not being stuck on ideological medicine, but on what works and what doesn't and what appears to be dangerous and what's not. But we've had some internationally on as well, and it's really broadened our horizons. And, and one of these doctors that I've taken notice of is Dr. Claire Craig. She's a diagnostic pathologist who specializes in cancer diagnostics. She's also the co-chair of the Heart Group, okay, health advisory recovery team in the UK. I have quoted their work a lot the past year. Uh, they've really done terrific work in the UK, as we've seen some of our favorite organizations here in the US. And she has some very, very powerful videos out taking apart the clinical trials of Pfizer and Moderna for their baby and toddler uh, concoction and the FDA's approval. You could follow her on Twitter at Claire Craig Path, P-A-T-H, as in pathologist. And with us in the flesh today is none other than Dr. Claire Craig. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us from across the world. Thank you very much for inviting me, Daniel. It's good to be here. Well, I see you're busy everywhere you go today. You're in high demand, so I'm certainly honored uh, you're willing to speak with someone from out of country. Um, I, I'm just curious, a general question here. I'm watching our own FDA, and my mouth is wide open. I'm thinking this has to be a dream. There's no way they can get away with this. Even I didn't think they would go to babies and toddlers. We don't see any other country in the world doing this. It seems like our entire medical establishment has gone insane. From your perspective, is the UK better or worse? Are you experiencing the same thing? Because I do sense a little bit more caution in the UK you know, with going after kids. And I have seen a lot better data from your government than our government. But is that an illusion? Well, I think there's two answers to that. On, on the one hand... The UK has watched the FDA and then followed in the past. So um, watch this space. But on the other hand, I think that the meeting that the FDA had to discuss this, which is a public meeting before making the decision, involved um, a lot of people got to put their views, including parents. And there did seem to be a high number of relatively hysterical parents pressurizing them to vaccinate. And I don't think we've quite got that same body of parents in the UK wanting this. And so, for example, if you look at the five to 11 year olds who uh, were only offered, was the word they used, the vaccine relatively recently, um, the uptake's been very low and it's sort of plateaued beneath 10% of that population. So I think we've done quite a good job educating the parents here and I think it has paid off. And so I'm hoping that that will also reflect to the even younger children if our regulator also goes along with it. But the thing that really struck me about the decision was that it was unanimous. I mean, it's just extraordinary to find 
unanimity among 28 people on anything and on something where you know there's more than a little ambiguity to say the very least how was it that not one of them abstained let alone voted against and when you look at Moderna we know that there are regulators elsewhere in the world who've said no to Moderna in young people because of the myocarditis risk and they just you know they said no for some time So how can one regulator in one country be saying no, and yet the FDA be unanimously yes on babies? It's absolutely perverse. And it's worse than that because a pound per pound, um, you guys go by kilos, we go by pounds, but however you want (laughs) to measure that, you're talking about potentially – I, I, I bet a conversion, so I'll use pounds here – 15, 16-pound, six-month-old girls – um, could be getting a concoction of 25 micrograms, um, which is almost the, the dosage of Pfizer's adult shot, but pound per pound, uh, more concentrated even for Moderna's more robust shot. So all the concerns they had for myocarditis are being put upon the kids here. I don't know how Moderna gets away with that, but I want you to comment on Pfizer I found very fascinating. One of the Pfizer reps there um, noted during the hearing and I'm forgetting the name is Gruber, I believe, that they worked very carefully to concoct the three microgram dose. Uh, you know, this is Pfizer shot to avoid adverse events. And I was floored because that was an admission that you basically cannot have a minimal effective dose and and avoid adverse events. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is not admission. I mean, the whole dosage thing is is. A, a really, really important topic, but measuring the dose of the mRNA in the syringe isn't the measurement. The measurement we need to know is how much protein ends up being made. Mm. And of course, that could vary enormously on all sorts of variables, but growing children have likely got very efficient cell factories compared with the elderly. So, you know, you need to do that experiment you need to inject them with different dosages and figure out how much protein how much spike protein is actually being made and that's such a basic basic request that a regulator should have asked for right up front before any trial any any kind of randomized controlled trials it'll be in the early trial stage to say what dosage are we actually producing in these people and so yes they're getting a high dose of mrna but Really, we nobody has any idea how much protein we're giving them. That's that's an amazing thing I didn't think about. It. Is that part of the reason why it does appear, and, and we have some data suggesting this, that younger people appear to have more problems with the shots than older people because their body seems to manufacture it more, the spike? Well, that could be, that absolutely could be a reason. I mean, to be honest, it's, I could come up with all sorts of potential reasons that are, uh, worth looking into um you know some people have hypothesized that the part of the myocarditis thing is a testosterone driven thing because it's more in the boys and it's more at an age where they have high testosterone levels um you know there's all sorts of variables involved and and that's i mean that's it would the be nice thing. to study it wouldn't it be <laughs> well, quite, well quite and you know what these are these have been in use now for a long time a really long time. And so if at the in like January 21, we were having this conversation, you you might have a little bit more 
flexibility in saying, well, you know, there are some things we obviously still don't understand, but we're not in January 21 anymore. The, the, why haven't these experiments been done in the meantime? Why haven't the regulators been demanding them in the meantime? I would love to see a randomized thousand people who got the shots do a cardiac MRI on them. And what will you find? Um, well, quite. And, <laughs> and even more simply, you know, once we knew that there was an issue in teenagers, it would have been very simple to make sure that a cohort of them had blood tests done after their vaccine to see if their heart enzyme troponin levels were raised. I mean, that's a very simple, cheap experiment that wasn't done ever anywhere around the world. It's really strange. You know, I, 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 sorry, I just would like to say oh, sure. that, um, that I have four children who have had tons of vaccines and I've had tons of vaccines and I, I'm not... You know, just having sort of said everything that I said, I'm sounding like I'm anti-everything, but I'm really not anti-everything. Well, it's like saying, are you anti-fat and calories? I mean, yeah, the details yeah. matter. It's it's it's, it's yeah. a ridiculous moniker that they throw at people to silence debate. You know, not everything is created equal. And I think it's clear to a blind person at this point, you know, even if you're intellectually blind, you have to understand that the safety signals are extraordinary. I mean, mm. I mean, there's the big things, the neurological, the heart, and then there's the, you know, Jakob Kreutzfeld, which we thought was kind of crazy. No, it's not calling. We have three, three papers on that now. Peter McCullough put out yesterday, you have a JAMA paper um, out on, uh, you, you see, we don't have this here, but the AstraZeneca shot, although J&J &J is kind of similar, um, Norway, Finland, Denmark, staggering brain damage caused uh, within 28 days. They picked up on, you know, all sorts of thrombocytopenic events and, and brain damage. I mean, this is utterly insane. And then you'd say, OK, there's one thing if, wow, we have a, we have a virus that's just killing people left and right. And this thing really stops the virus. So then you say, OK, well, then you got to weigh it. But let's go to the other side of that equation. Where in the real world, what I am seeing, and your country was the biggest uh, um, help on, in this, every week, the UK Health Security Agency, and we were monitoring it here every Thursday, for mm -hmm. us it would come mm -hmm. out later in the day, and we would see every week what appeared to be, since really last July, negative efficacy. Negative uh -huh. efficacy. And so, but, but their trials until now seem to show, no, it was amazingly effective isn't it true that the baby and toddler trial itself the documents from pfizer and moderna kind of hint to that well the, well i mean the, the the story that that we um that was being told even before they stopped doing this report so really early on the story that was being told by people who were carefully observing the rollout was that they kept observing negative efficacy in the period right after first vaccination. So there was this one week to two weeks where more people who were vaccinated were getting COVID than people who weren't vaccinated. And of course, when you when that happens, you have to ask the question, <laughs> has this vaccine caused this person to be infected sooner than they otherwise would have been? And if that's the case, that calls into question how everything is measured. Because if you make people have it sooner and you ignore that period in your measurement, which is what all the trials do, you can create the illusion of efficacy later on because the unvaccinated people who are susceptible will get it over a broader time frame. 
whereas the vaccinated will get it all early and then you don't record that you start recording once they've had it and it looks like it's working and and that's a critical question right and um mostly people have hidden the data on that so it you know we've sort of had to dig and dig to find the very occasional paper where people have been honest about it and when you find where they've been honest about it it tells a really concerning story. And for the baby trial that Pfizer just presented to the FDA, um, they presented data for the first three weeks after the first dose. So there was three weeks between first dose and second dose. And in that period, the vaccinated were 30% more likely to get COVID than the placebo group. So, you know, you, you, you are going through a sort of at-risk period immediately after vaccination, which... Um, makes a bit of sense because um, what Pfizer showed very early on in their safety trials was that the this particular vaccine hits the lymphocytes, which are the white blood cells who keep on top of viral infection. And if your white blood cell count is falling through the floor for a period, albeit a short period, there's going to be a window where you're more susceptible. And I think that's why we've seen this high rate of um, shingles and herpes zoster infections mm. because normally someone who's had chickenpox, their virus is still on board, but it's kept in check all the time by their lymphocytes. And if you knock their lymphocytes out for a few days, then they're at more risk of viral infection. So that, it, that signal of shingles infections is an alarm signal saying, this is making people more susceptible to a virus. You know, I I want to freeze frame right there because this is something that, you know, I'm just a political guy. So before two years ago, I didn't know anything about this, but I've learned a lot of immunology from people like you coming on the show. And what I find so disturbing is that as a regular layman, I never knew anything about this. So they use the word vaccine so loosely that in, in people's minds, it's the most mellifluous sounding term in the English language. It means a cure. People never envisioned that it could either on net or in absolute terms in any way, do something negative, harmful. And you know, and you could assess overall, maybe sometimes in the end you'll come out ahead, maybe yeah, maybe not. But that it does that in itself is a big problem, that it does tamp down some of your innate immunity, which is very important. And so let me take that to the next level. What you're telling me, isn't that an even bigger concern the younger you get? Because my understanding was the younger you get, the stronger and more robust your innate versus humoral immunity is. So therefore, the consequence of destroying it for, for something that they don't even need and they're not even at risk for and really no one is with Omicron too much, isn't it worse for babies? Hmm. I mean, I don't know how to answer that, really. Sure. I think uh, babies do have a really different immune system to us, which... Um, you know, because it's a learning immune system. So it it, it, it it is different to adults in ways that we don't fully comprehend. Mm. And um, in ways that also I don't, you know, know the in, all the ins and outs of either. I mean, myself. we don't know everything. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's, I mean, that, that is just absolutely comes to the crux of this whole yes. last two years is this failure to admit that, you know, there's fallibility in science and that we, like the whole follow the science line is just, such a lie when when there's an awful lot we don't know and honestly that's what makes science worth studying and doing and researching is because there's so much that we that we don't know and and the 
pretending that we do is the most dangerous thing. Yeah. You know, I, you stop learning as soon as you pretend you know. I want to run by you a few things we talked about this week to get your expert opinion on it uh, about the trial itself. So mm-hmm. one of the things I've heard you speak about, and we've mentioned this, is the appalling amount of people who dropped out of the trial by the time the third dose came around, about two-thirds worth. Describe what what you're seeing with that and the consequences of that and why that really undermines the the reliability of any clinical trial. Okay, so before you do a clinical trial, the first thing you have to do is figure out how many patients you need. Um, in order to show what you are hoping to show. So you have to have a sort of guess at what it might show. And then you need a a number that's going to be statistically powerful enough to demonstrate that because it's quite unethical to run a trial where you don't have the numbers required to actually show anything. So the number that they required to show anything was 4,500. And they recruited that many patients. And then they ran the trial and it didn't really show anything, you know. So they had this three-week period after the first dose where it actually showed it was worse. And then they had an eight-week gap before the second dose where nothing really happened much. And then they changed the protocol and said, right, we'll add a third dose in. So they added in this third dose, which occurred at a different time for each of the patients because it was a sort of afterthought. Um, And then they ignored the first week after the third dose as well And then there was this tiny window of time where they had this little blip in the data, (laughs) which was like just enough for them to say something and they stopped. So I'm not sure the, um, you know, and at that point, 3000 of the children hadn't made it to the end. Now, I don't think they necessarily dropped out. I think they just stopped it early and they stopped it at a point where there were seven children with COVID in the placebo arm, and there were three children with COVID in the vaccine arm. So the basis for all of their claim of this thing working is seven versus three. And and it's worth bearing in mind that the um the 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 two arms of the trial, the two groups in the trial weren't the same size. So you have to, you know, work out the percentages to compare them fairly. But the point is that that's cheating. You can't run a trial like that. You can't, you know, that you have to run it to the end. You can't just stop it just in that one moment when you finally saw a difference. Because remember, the plan was to stop after two doses when there was no difference. So if you if you keep going until you, the moment you see a difference opening up, you stop, that's cheating. That's just a statistical cheat. So one of the other things that I noticed, too, I want to get your take on this with the placebo that I find very disturbing. So I noticed right away the degree of systemic reactions. Okay, Pfizer's uh, uh, shot, I believe this is for the six-month to two-year-olds. Table 21, 61% I saw had systemic reactions. And then I looked at SAEs, severe adverse events, 1.4%. 1.4%. And I was about to start running with that because the 1.4% is very meaningful to me because we've worked for a lot of months here collating a lot of different data, whether it's the Israeli Health Ministry survey, whether it's German excess death data, 
Uh, we have a lot of different things with uh, U.S. life insurance data. There's underreporting factors from the past, and it actually honed in right around that one to one and a half percent that mm. likely had, however you want to define it, significant long-term or severe short-term, you know, really significant adverse events, probably around that amount, which is about several million people in the United States. And there's a lot of data hinting that. So I thought that I really jumped. I was like, wow, that's exactly on. But then I looked at the placebo and for, you know, the general systemic, uh, it was roughly the same as as the Mm -hmm. trial arm. And then in the SAEs, it was even more 2.3%. What is going on with that? I mean, that is the question to be asking. Absolutely. (laughs) So um, in theory, you know, in a trial, especially when it's a trial of old people, you're going to have some coincidences in the follow up period because, you know, sometimes people get sick anyway and and it's not because of the what you've done in the trial. So you can expect to have a very low level of a problem. And that's almost why we have the control arm. Right. We have the control arm so we can compare what baseline coincidences look like compared to the vaccine but when you've got children and young babies and you inject them with saline we know from other vaccine trials 60 percent of odd i can't remember exactly what it was in the placebo one but it was around that ballpark they shouldn't be getting systemic symptoms so systemic symptoms meaning not just a bit sore arm right injection site yeah you know they're getting headaches they're getting something elsewhere in their body 60 percent of children is a massive number if you're injecting them with saline. It's a very, very odd result. It's a very odd result that hints to something funny going on there with the placebo because I've watched clinical trials throughout this whole ordeal, and what we've seen is always, I mean, you always find more, even the safest drugs, you'll find more adverse events in the trial arm just simply because most of them cause GI issues. You know, if nothing else, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. they could be totally safe, but they'll, you know, experience some diarrhea or something that's very common. Um, And then you could say, all right, some people have it in their mind, but severe adverse events. I mean, that just defies logic. And it really makes you wonder if that goes back to some of the efficacy things too, if there's something going on with that placebo group. But I guess, um, you know, I've I've helped some state legislatures here draft letters to their governor, and I'm working on that now, that this is one of the questions that before you purchase it for your state, do you want to know what's behind that? Um, or are we yeah. just going to let that go? Yeah, I mean, what, what some um, pharma companies do with vaccine trials is they use, they don't use saline. So, for instance, in the AstraZeneca trials, they used a meningitis vaccine as the control which is, you know, not necessarily what you want to be comparing. You want to be comparing something that's inert, completely inert. Um, But, and and what you, you know, what a pharma company might want to do is to compare their vaccine against lipid nanoparticles that don't have the mRNA in it, Mm. you know, because, because there might be something up with the lipid nanoparticles. But that's not what they're stating they're doing. They're stating it's saline. Yes, indeed. That's a pretty uh pretty powerful saline going on there. Um you know, one of the things that we're trying to figure out obviously is, you know, the extent of the damage and and again, there's a lot of different data points we're seeing. Um the excess deaths are unmistakable. Um life insurance claims, health insurance claims. We're seeing this all over the place. Um obviously there's 
Um, I don't know a single person that I know who was injured by the shot that had a Vera's injury. So there's, oh, really? it, it's definitely underreported. Uh, well, what I'm trying yeah. to say is that as many entries as there are, it's clearly underreported. What could you describe a little bit what you're seeing with adverse event reporting in, um, in the UK and how it kind of compares to theirs and, you know, any observations you have on that? Yeah, I mean, VAERS actually is a great system. It's a great system you've got where you see individual reports and you can follow them through. And I mean, I know it's got issues. I know there are delays in it being updated and all sorts of things like that. But our system doesn't do it on an individual basis. So you get a list of reactions and you don't know how many belong to one person, which makes it almost uninterpretable. Um, and, and the thing to remember with both of well, all of these systems, really, is that they are not a measurement. They were never designed to be a measurement and they shouldn't be used as a measurement. They're a, a system designed to um, alert to a signal. That's all that they're yes. for, is to say this might be an issue. And you know we've had a lot of signals. And as soon as you have signals, you have to do other things to do your measuring. And the thing is in the past, that was, a very difficult process that could take really several years to carry out, or I'm not sure it necessarily had to, but it certainly did take several years. Whereas these days, we, especially in the UK, we have wonderful, huge databases of medical um, information because we've got, you know, we've got our one healthcare system sure. and um, we've got separate primary care bodies, but they've come together and uh, about three quarters of the population are all in one digitalized system there. So what you can do then is you can look over time and say, well, this for a particular condition, we would have expected in the past there to be this many. And have we seen a rise recently? And that is a very easy sum to do that alone. Um, obviously, there are complications because um, COVID has been around. So you have to also look at what happened in 2020 and, you know, see how much of a signal there was before the vaccine so that you can factor that in. And and really, it's very simple. The question that you're asking, you, you want to know what was the background rate? What's the rate in the unvaccinated? What's the rate in people who've only been vaccinated? What's the rate in people who've only had COVID? And what's the rate in people who've had COVID and a vaccine? Yep. It's kind of obvious. And nobody does it. Nobody does. Nobody but I will say it. we did get lucky because the vaccine started right around the beginning of a calendar year. So mm -hmm. we do have a lot of measures. And I, you, you have a lot of great mm -hmm. researchers in your country. And you could you could vet this out. And it's pretty obvious. You look at 2020. You look at, you know, 2019 is pre-COVID, 2020 is COVID pre-vaccine. You look at 2021, and it consistently, we're seeing more excess deaths in 2021, more heart ailments, especially in Israel. There's some good data out on there, 2021, much more than 2020. They looked at the ambulance cardiac uh, EMS yeah. calls, you know, for those three years, and you're able to clearly see it. We know there's a cardiac element to COVID, but you're able to actually distinguish that, and it's it's extremely disturbing. So speaking of safety signals... You're a pathologist. I view people like you as, you know, the way I, you know, know the streets in my neighborhood, you know, the pathways in the body. Okay, mm -hmm. so you, you've, you've seen a lot what this vaccine is capable of, what the spike protein is capable of, possibly the pro-inflammatory nature of the lipid nanoparticles. What are some of the maladies that concern you the most long term based on safety signals you're seeing? 
So, okay, I'm, I'm not going to answer that in a straightforward <laughs> way because, because I think that we've had too much fear. There has been far too much fear. Sure. And I think there are people on our side who are, um, have sort of created their own fear narrative mm-hmm. around the vaccine. And there are stories that have just been exaggerated in a way that's not unhelpful. So I think it is important to have the discussion. You know, I think it's important for people to put forward hypotheses so that they can be tested and so that we can, you know, know where to look, know where there are concerns. But it's worth saying that things like the Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease that you mentioned earlier, that's a very rare disease. And so that's brilliant for measuring a change in the numbers, because if something's very rare, it's much easier to see an increase and I I haven't seen anything saying that there's been an increase that I don't I haven't you know hey I've seen reports of we've had this many cases uh, but that's not the same as saying that the overall number has increased Um, and that's a really really important difference and there are tons of papers reporting individual patients saying, no, I've had this patient, they had the vaccine and then this happened or that happened. And those papers are really important. They play a really important role. And especially when you start to see a cluster of something particularly rare. But some of them will be coincidences. They just they just will be coincidences. And so with this kind of heightened concern, that's inevitable. And then you have the opposite problem, which is that there are some conditions that are just really, really common. And so an increase that may indeed be due to the vaccine becomes really hard to measure. And so the fact that we can see this quite dramatic rise in cardiac arrest calls is hugely concerning because that's something that, you know, that's a big number that's changed. Sudden adult death syndrome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So that is a really, really big concern. Um, And you know, ought to have been followed up. So I've been calling out the cardiac arrest data for over a year um, on, a, on a regular basis and um, nothing, nothing, no comment from public health officials on it whatsoever. Not even a kind of, we think it's COVID, not even that. Um, well, which I'll tell you what they're t- saying in America. They're saying here that it's not a big deal. You know, most survive it, it's not a big deal. That That's basically- survive what? Cardiac arrest, that's not- Well, I mean, myocarditis at least. That's, that's, that's been the line- um, they call it mild myocarditis, yeah, yeah. and you know sure. it's it's not that big of a deal. That it's shocking, yeah. but that's what they're saying. So, I mean, the word "most" has been used and abused quite a lot, hasn't it? It's that whole Twitter thing when they put the warnings on that the vaccines are safe for most people. And you're like, well, so was thalidomide. You know, I mean, yeah. like most, you can't just it must be safe for more than most people, and um. The, the myocarditis story is is really troubling because, I mean, the fact is that if you've got a new condition, I guess this particular, you know, cause is new, then actually nobody knows. Nobody knows quite how bad or not bad it might be in the long run, but you have to compare it to what we do know. And what we do know about myocarditis is not pretty at all. And you know, young people have always had a low rate of getting it from viruses in the past. Um, and a high proportion of them have a bad long-term outcome. Um, and we don't know that that will be the case for this. You know, I don't want to start spreading more fear again. But, 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 but I would say, Dr. Craig, the, 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 I agree with what you're saying, but the, the, the broader point I know you agree on is that 
it's not our job to prove definitively with the scientific method that this will kill every last person within five years that takes it. No, no. It's their job to prove with the scientific method that it will not do anything out of the ordinary um, and give that informed consent before they sit and fund it, promote it, market it, much less mandate it. I'm, I'm not even getting to mandates. Uh, that's obviously immoral. But but even before that, you know, that, that's not an enlightened consent. If every pediatrician, every medical association is is triggered to to promote something, it's like, well, we can't prove that every last case of subclinical myocarditis will will go kinetic. Well, no, I can't prove that either, and not all of them will, but a lot of them might, and and that's something that has to be looked at. And and you're right. I mean, Kruzfeld Jacob, I just bring that up just to demonstrate the expansiveness of some of the signals. Um, but yeah, that's always going to be rare. But then you have a lot of the neurological ones and vertigo and tinnitus. Tinnitus, there's tens of thousands in theirs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the Mayo Clinic has spoken about that openly. But again, that's the type of thing they'll say. Um, th- there was a recent article on that. Yeah, it's kind of mild. It clears up. It's not a big deal. And, you know, again, wait a minute. that That's not informed consent. So, I mean, this is really gets back to, to a Nuremberg principle that my concern is, and I'll give you the last word on this before we show, uh, um, you know, sew this up. My concern about what, what you're observing from these clinical trials and what the FDA did is that the more this goes on, the more they acculturate us to tolerating a higher and higher bar of assumption of risk that then allows this to become the new normal that you know what I mean? Like, and let it's not like we could prove it causes X number of this or X number of that, but we are getting pretty close to a lot of things to proving a certain minimum, and it's not pretty, like you said, and yet that's not good enough. So, it, it feels like the whole story has been based on uh, a belief system that had no foundations, right? And so, from the very beginning, I was against vaccinating people in their 20s and 30s, you know, they they're the, the benefits didn't justify it, let alone the risks. The yes. benefits did not justify it. And and the reason, the only way I can kind of try to understand the decision-making is that they've based all of their assumptions on the idea that this virus is like measles in that um, it spreads person to person and everybody was susceptible. They had this idea that it was a brand new thing, you know, perhaps because they knew something about it being bioengineered and that made them more scared of it (laughs) um and they had this idea that it would carry on it would carry on and carry on and carry on through the population if we didn't change human behavior and i think all of that's not true and once you realize what is true which is that this virus is behaving like an influenza that it will come every season and it will take a percentage of the population in that season in terms of infections, and then it will go, and then it will come again, and then it will go, and that's what influenza does, and it will take a decade to work through the population. So all of their assumptions about the risk need to be divided by 10 because it, yep. you know, that doesn't happen until a decade has passed. And then you have to say, well, hang on a second, how, how much have we actually affected this with a vaccine? Because It's gotten worse. 
Exactly, exactly. When I mean, you look qualitatively, at it, the deaths, so it, people are very confused about this. The deaths did go up. I, I had the numbers as of last month, I believe 72% of the global COVID deaths, recorded ones, were after the assumption of the vaccine. Now, there's like kind of three stages. There's pre-vaccine, there's post-vaccine, pre-Omicron, so that is very deadly. Now is broadly not deadly, but that's not because of the vax. There's no evidence... Um, I mean, in fact, we're seeing a little bit to the contrary, but there's no evidence that the vaccinated are doing better with clinical outcomes with Omicron. It's just that Omicron is not pathogenic so much in the lungs or uh, thrombotic as much as, you know, some of the other ones were. So yeah. that's what they're so benefiting what off of. You just compare neighboring countries. You compare Israel and Palestine, and they have the same number of deaths. You compare the Eastern European countries, which are quite interesting because there's a broad range of vaccine mm. uptake there from about 30% to 60% plus. And you look at the high vax countries and the low vax countries, and there's really no difference in excess mortality. It's just, it hasn't made a difference. And, and maybe, you know, once you've got past the 30%, then you've covered the vulnerable and the old. So maybe you, you can't argue it because it's not zero. I, almost every study that has ever been done that did, I mean, we had a Harvard researcher uh, was one of the first, the first that I saw, there might've been earlier ones, um, and the fact checkers were all over me for citing that, and I literally just quoted his words, and they made him almost go and recant it, but he looked at 3,000 American counties and a number of European countries mm-hmm. and could <laughs> find no R-squared. And, and we, know, uh, we know that even correlation doesn't prove causation, but they couldn't even find a correlation. And yeah. in fact, most have shown somewhat of a reverse correlation with various varying level, degrees of power, but it's looking an awful lot like the mask analysis from what yes. we're seeing. And so my my question to you is, there's straight up gospel, straight up it's being taken as a given by everyone. Okay, okay, it doesn't stop infection, but but it helps against critical illness. And in certain ways, they could kind of manipulate it sometimes to show that. But then at the end of the day, when the noise and the dust settle, you're not even seeing a correlation. I, I completely agree. And so what we've seen is the authorities will always make massive adjustments with an, ever an excuse to make the unvaccinated look worse. But you'll never see very basic adjustments the other way. So when you compare, say, you know, we had good data on hospitalized cases versus in the vaccine unvaccinated, where, you know, the bias is gone because they're sick enough to be in hospital. So you've probably got the full measurement there. And we look at the hospital fatality rate is basically the same. But then you haven't accounted for the fact that the unvaccinated are in they have a higher proportion of ethnic minorities who are at risk and also of socioeconomic demographics that are at risk. Yeah, we saw that a little bit in Sweden, Sweden versus some of its neighboring countries. Yeah. Yeah. But then they just never adjust in in a way that might be, you know, detrimental to what it looks like for the vaccine, which is just so dishonest. It's so, so dishonest to pretend there isn't a bias the other way. Of course, there's a bias the other way. And that's the thing. We have to prove each tranche. They they lied about the, you know, effectiveness, you know, sterilization. I mean, to this day, the FDA labels the community shot, Pfizer's, I mean, you know, if you want to say it's the same thing or whatever, the exact same way they label sterilizing vaccines. And it's absolutely mm-hmm. not. But they, mm-hmm. you know, that th- th- they're able to let that go. Oh, but it helps against critical illness. Um, I'm, I wonder if you saw the observations 
we, we've seen, I find this tremendous, to me one of the most amazing control groups on this whole global experiment are the Pacific Rim countries. You look at Australia, New Zealand, um, Cambodia, I think I've, I've looked at, Taiwan, South Korea, these type of countries. They're mm -hmm. the perfect study. And Iceland, which is a different part of the world, Iceland, to a certain extent, Finland as well. They are great examples. Why? Because they did what we were told is the most amazing thing to do. Most of the countries mm -hmm. I mentioned, but especially the you know Australia, New Zealand, they locked down until there was a vaccine, and they and they they did it right, not the way we did it here. They did it right, right? You know, okay. And then they had record numbers of people vaccinated and boosted, and and amazingly, they barely had any deaths. Those places that I mentioned, um. They didn't have it through Wuhan, Alpha, and even yeah. Delta, which was really a beast, really horrible, especially here in America. I mean, it was so pathogenic, um, so thrombotic. We had even younger people were having cytokine storms from it. Really, really bad stuff. They, they seem to really skate by. And, you know, that's where we had all these theories that maybe the Pacific Rim had this partial cross immunity. Who knows? Whatever. And then suddenly, after they have three shots, with the least pathogenic variant that really fundamentally is not so much a lung disorder you have all the excess deaths now yes. why and, and the thing the thing to note is that their excess deaths are comparable to the u.s and europe first wave yes. deaths i mean you know they have got to that stage they just had their first wave now now why it's really really interesting academically um but the point is i mean the the idea that they successfully locked down all of them, every single one of them, and then they, you know, unsuccessfully failed this time. Every single one of them. It just makes absolutely no sense. It's, you know, it's clearly a biological phenomenon. It's clearly a geographical distinction that made them them different. Whatever the reason is, it's geographic. It's not. It's not the human behaviour. And clearly, the same yeah. could be said back in spring 2020. Actually, there was Eastern Europe didn't really have much of a wave, and the middle states of of the US didn't really have much of a wave. And again, it's a geographical region. The whole region didn't have it. And um, one of the, um, the like, a hypothesis that I've, I've sort of put forward around it being like influenza um, works on the basis that you have these, you know, seasonal waves and the seasonal waves occur when you've had virus circling all summer with no real impact. And what the textbooks tell you is well, the virus is around and then we all huddle together in the winter indoors and that's what makes a surge happen in the winter. Now, of course, that, that, that actually kind of works, that story, where I live in London, but it doesn't really work in the US where there's plenty of huddling indoors away from the heat in the summer. And There's, there's no, no such thing there. as not having air conditioning in America. I mean... Yeah, yeah. Know. So, you know, this it doesn't fit the story. It just doesn't make sense. It does. And, so, and that's what I hate when everyone comes up with their things and they stick by it, and they govern based off of it. You know, you could you could posit something, an interesting idea, but they'll liver, literally govern mm -hmm. um, lives and violate human rights and mm -hmm. constitutional rights based on, you know, they're, they're just daily whims. And even after it's disproven 50 times over, they, they stick to it. So, you know, look, it, it is really something that um, it, it's very heartening for me to see that there's other countries, there's a medical freedom movement, people... Um, that are trying to engage in informed consent. Where could people find more about you and your work? Um, so do come to the Heart website, heartgroup.org, 
and sign up for our weekly bulletins. And then I'm on Twitter at Claire Craig Path, C-L-A-R-E. Well, there you have it. Very enlightening and engaging. <laughs> um, really looking forward to keeping in touch with you. And thanks so much for your work. Take care. Thanks ever so much, Daniel. You too. So again, that was Dr. Claire Craig um, of the UK Heart Group, pathologist. And uh, make sure to follow her on Twitter. Really good information there. Um, I've learned a lot. I, I just found her this week. You know, At least there's some good to technology and social media. You could use it for the good. Uh, but but it, you know it, it's funny. There's there's nothing choreographed. I have people on, and you'll you'll see. Sometimes they're the same as me. Sometimes I'll have a little different assertion. Sometimes they disagree, and it's you know you you, you get to decide. Um, but you see, even someone like like uh, Dr. Craig, she'll she'll you know everyone's a little bit cautious. They don't want to assert anything. Unlike the other side that just makes wild assumptions and they govern based off of it. But there's that much fear. I mean, I know here the AMA put out a recent a whole new set of rules that. They, they, they licensed the AMA to go after all doctors that put out what they say is misinformation, which means proper information. Um, and, you know, anyone who doesn't put out their misinformation. Uh, but, you know, this was a doctor show, a science show, but we have to get back to politics. We're never going to convince them. They're evil. That's what this all shows. We need a tribunal. We need a Nuremberg Code, Nuremberg Trial. We need to fight it with power. But we only have one governor doing it. You know, just in one week, DeSantis says, I'm not distributing the baby shots. He actually organized an organization to endorse candidates that he's going to personally endorse for a school board. So he's building a movement on that front. Um, he just announced, actually, on illegal immigration, too. He's taking a bunch of different uh, um, bunch of different uh, ideas to deter illegal immigration in the state. A strike force to interdict illegals who are drug smuggling, human trafficking, carrying guns. Petition filed with the Florida Supreme Court to impanel grand jury for smuggling networks. And then he signed a bill penalizing contractors who brings who bring illegals to Florida. This is just in a day's work. And and then he is, is seriously starting up this state militia, the state guard, uh, that he's going to invite people from and I'm hearing not just in Florida but around the country who are kicked out of the military a landing place imagine if we had 20 other red state governors doing this it's a painful really too painful to think of uh you know I wish I wish we were ignorant I wish we could just go on thinking that it's impossible to get a guy like ourselves elected a guy who cares about people no it's not and remember this is the third largest state what does this say about Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Idaho, Wyoming, North Dakota, Kansas? You know what I'm saying? It's pathetic. Pathetic. But we're going to keep fighting on. We're going to keep demonstrating this truth. Send this show to every one of your friends and relatives. That's your homework. That's the biggest thing you can do because you get the truth out. We inflame people. Get them engaged. That's how we're going to make change. Email me, Daniel Hurwitz at startmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at rmconservative. Till next week, hope you guys have a terrific Father's Day time with family. God bless you all, and thank you for listening.